A candy colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is alright I close my eyes Then I drift
Greetings, everybody out there in Dreamland. Namaste, Angelo. Iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens a friend. I am mixing up the planned presentation of an audiobook for a, I guess you call it an attempt at something new, but I have done readings before, although I typically resort to text-to-speech or use public domain, uh, fair use uh, presentations by the creator uh, or third party, you know, channels and things like that. But today I'm going to be reading the audio, or at least, uh, sorry, reading the book. See, I'm so used to saying audio book that I'm looking at the book right now and I, I, I said audio book. You know, I think somewhere the Unabomber is frowning in his, uh, his solitary confinement at the, uh, the technocratic nightmare that Stopia is happening. But yeah, audiobook instead of book. But I'm looking at the book here, and I don't have an audio version of it. There's nowhere to be found. So I'm going to be uploading this as the audiobook version first on YouTube, first online. Um, and so this is going to be the reading for that. I'm broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas. Thank you all very much, each and every one of you out there in Dreamland, tuning into another episode of Beyond Top Secret Texan Podcast. I am your host, Beyond Top Secret Texan. Thank you very much, one and all new listeners. Uh, this is going to be not my work, but reading Mac Tawney's The Crypto-Terrestrial Hypothesis. The Crypto-Terrestrial Hypothesis. And so we're going to be reading Mac Tawney's and getting a little bit of information online about him and everything uh, to help, you know, explain and clarify who this figure was, not only to ufology, but towards the entire collective field of studying the supernatural phenomenology of contact with beings of superior intelligence and technology so superior it is akin to magic. So we're going to be reading a little bit first about Mactani's and then be reading his audio book. So thank you all very much. We're going to be doing this type of presentation every Monday. Given your response to this one, I'm going to um, consider doing more readings and, and make Monday like a public reading, um, you know, reading the actual book instead of relying on the public use of, uh, you know, public domain. I mean, the fair use of public domain. Thank you all very much. Leave a comment on Instagram. Instagram.com slash beyond top secret Texan or at beyond top secret Texan on Instagram at top secret Texan on Twitter or use link tree link tree slash beyond top secret Texan. The only link you ever need to find all of my social media platforms, find all my video hosting sites, like my YouTube address, all of the links there, my pod page, 
facebook.com slash beyond top secret text podcast webpage dedicated to the um, to the podcast so you don't have to use an app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything like that. But if you do prefer to use a certain podcast platform, podcast distributor, I am hosted well over on a dozen, over a dozen, as I've found so far, uh, platforms. And, and every platform that you can imagine, every major platform hosts my podcast from iHeartRadio to Apple Podcasts to uh, Spotify, Anchor FM, you know, everything. Um, and you can find my free episodes, like I said, on my personal webpage, my personal uh, podpage.com slash beyond top secret text. All of the links available on Linktree slash beyond top secret text. But please leave me a DM, leave me a Twitter message if you like this presentation, if you like this reading and want more of it in the future. Every Monday will be a public domain, a fair use presentation of esoteric occult and our advanced ufology works that I believe would help enlighten and further your understanding and conceptualizing of what this great pursuit of truth truly has already accomplished because on the shoulders of giants we truly see further. So thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much, and especially thank you, Mac Tonis, for providing this work, as well as all the presenters I have featured so far, and all the presenters I will feature. Yeah, I only do it out of respect, and I only do it out of a place of wishing to archive and help spread the message to my listeners, you guys out there in Dreamland. Once again, like I said, the greatest audience out there in Dreamland. Thank you all very much. So let's first listen to who Mac Tonis was. Because he is gone. He is deceased. Dead. No other way to put it. George Carlin said it best. Don't say passed on to the great beyond. Or, uh, you know, passed away. Say he's fucking dead. He's super dead. Uh, he died in 2009 at the age of 34. If you can believe it or not. Suspiciously young. And suspiciously a heart uh, attack which is the modus operandi of many CIA wet work and hit job Uh, Brett Bart for example uh, died of a heart attack um, after criticizing and um, proclaiming that he had evidence against the Obama uh, regime this is absolutely how the deep state operates and assassinates people through the use of heart attacks and things like aneurysms, um, drowning, suspicious drowning, suspicious suicides and falls, um, all in their modus operandi, right? So, and this is all because of their manual and their guidebook too, but he was 34 years old. He supported himself with a variety of nine to five jobs during his research, and uh, such as Starbucks, um, so very down to earth guy, not a member of the Illuminati, not a member of the elite or the the wealthy rich class like Terrence McKenna or Timothy Leary in terms of that like level of oh he was a strange individual who pursued unorthodox or occult beliefs but obviously sponsored because of his lineage and pedigree and you know being much like you know 
what that cast evolved into. Uh, the priest class, you know. But no, he was a researcher and an academic. Um, he had his first novel or first book published while in college in 1995. So he was an underground phenomenon and he was renowned within academic circles as well as furthering and advancing the research postulated by uh, Jonathan, or sorry, uh, Keel. John Keel and uh, Jacques Vallée in postulating or proposing the UFO phenomenon to be the visible elements of interactions between our civilization and species in terms of its select individuals and, and you know, um, personalities that are witnessing and researching and understanding this, with an advanced civilization terrestrial to Earth, native to Earth, that coexists as well as competes with our civilization using their advanced intellect and technology to coerce and control our worldview and have they have been doing so since mankind began and they are at a difference as to us as we are to the chimpanzee and so that as we understand our society in dealing with the chimpanzees uh, in their native populations and their wild environments, this civilization, which is off-world and subterranean-based, has existed and evolved side by side with us, or at least allowed us to evolve in their shadow, and control us with various technologies that elude our understanding because it's on purpose that our society is kept ignorant and rather um, limited by design, right, in understanding these technologies and how they work in their scale and scope, because we're always basically in the shadow and territory of these advanced terrestrial hominids, um, whatever their physical description be, either tall or short of stature, diminutive in size or gigantic in uh, power and scope, the the main factor to understand is that their intellect uh, is far far superior, so that they control absolute projections of uh, imagery and you know the mental faculties of man. You know, are just not competitive at that level. You know, it's just like the chimpanzee. The chimpanzee is not inferior in many different ways, physical strength. Uh, you know, durability, exposure to the elements, etc., digestive system, you know, metabolism, immune system, but um, societally, it's incapable of achieving the feats and accomplishments of humanity, uh, given it's it's just sheer, you know, stat- it's still it's sheer stature, it's it's sheer status as an organic or as a primitive uh, organism. So, that's who Mac Tani's was. 
Mike Tomlin is especially dead at 34, so unable to complete his research, unable to continue his uh, theories and, and pursuits. Uh, he would have definitely been an incredible figure to have talked to, especially nowadays. He died in 2009, so he was during a time where it was very, very dangerous to be a truther or an insider because of the CIA's surge in power after the global war on terror, but uh, definitely existed when the internet was still the Wild West, when colleges were still uh, open to new thinkers and to interesting debate. Um, and so, yeah, let's let's start. You know, by like this, pay him as this tribute by reading his works without further hesitation. And the next time you'll hear me, I will be reading his work. <coughs> Excuse me. I'll be reading his works The Crypto Terrestrials Copyright 2010 This was published posthumously This is by Mac Tonys M-A-C T-A Or T-O Sorry, belay my last Mac Tonys M-A-C T-O-N-N-I-E-S It was published in San Antonio, Texas By the way And this is also Kind of like that That six degrees of separation phenomenon This was published in San Antonio, Texas So I always kind of felt like I had a connection to Mac Tani's you know, in that way, because somehow it does always kind of connect back to Texas, because Texas is like the center, or at least the capital, presumably, of these tall whites, are these crypto-terrestrial beings that are native to Earth, but operate independently as controllers of mankind. The next time you hear my voice, I will be reading The Crypto Terrestrials, a meditation on indigenous humanoids and the aliens among us by Mac Tonis. Editor's note. Mac Tonis died in his sleep on the evening of October 18, 2009 at the age of 34. He was weeks away from turning in his manuscripts on the crypto-terrestrials. With the help of his family and friends, we have been able to piece together this, his final book. In particular, I would like to thank his mother, Dana Tonis, for rescuing the hard copy of the manuscript he had left on his desk and had been working on. David Peoples for emailing us the digital file of the manuscript that Mac had asked him to print out when his own printer broke down 
and for later checking Mac's laptop with Dana's help for any more recent version of the file, there were none. Nadia Sobin, whose striking artwork graces the cover of his book, Mike Cleland, who contributed the wonderful interior art, and to Nick Redfern for the forward, and Greg Bishop for the afterward. I have lost an author, two have lost a son, and thousands have lost a friend. In the face of intractical mysteries, we have all lost a brilliant thinker. Quote, Instead of looking at the screen, what I want to do is turn around and look the other way. When we look the other way, what we see is a little hole at the top of the wall with some light coming out. That's where I want to go. I want to steal the key to the projectionist booth, and then, when everybody has gone home, I want to break in. Jock Valet. Quote, we are part of a symbiotic relationship with something which disguises itself as an extraterrestrial invasion so as not to alarm us. Terrence McKenna. We're on your street, but you don't see us, or if you do smile and say hello. Morrissey. Forward. As a result of its elusive, ever-changing, and I would strongly argue seemingly uh, stage-managed nature and appearance, the UFO phenomenon is one that I should be firmly recognized by and appreciated for. It's many attendant uncertainties and complexities. After all, we should never forget that more than 60 years have elapsed since pilot Kenneth Arnold experienced his now historic encounter of the flying saucer kind over Mount Rainier in Washington State. And guess what? The U in UFO still stands for unidentified. Unfortunately, so many of those who have dared to immerse themselves within the ufological sandpit since that long-gone heady day in June 1947 have forgotten or stubbornly refused to acknowledge that stark fact. For those utterly belief-driven souls, the only answer to the ever-present UFO mystery that continues to intrude upon us at a collective and sometimes profoundly personal level is that the true unknowns have extraterrestrial origins. Yet the harsh reality is that the likes of the late J. Allen Hynek, Leonard Stringfield, Richard Hall, and countless other souls who became entranced by flying saucers and their forever elusive crews were utterly unable to provide any hard evidence that E.T. really was or still is amongst us. For all their files and attendant filing cabinets, their carefully compiled notes and their myriad interviews with numerous eyewitnesses, they failed to make a definitive case. That's right, they failed. Deal with it or don't, but it's a fact. Now, one might reasonably ask, well, just because absolute vindication for the extraterrestrial hypothesis has not yet been forthcoming, does that mean the same hypothesis has no merit? Of course not. However, in my view, if evidence of the ETH has failed to surface despite decades of hard work and diligent investigation, then maybe we should consider the notion that we are looking for the answers in all the wrong places. Instead of looking up, maybe we should be looking around us, and perhaps even below us too. 
Thankfully, there are a few learned scholars out there who recognize that what to some is a relatively straightforward matter, namely the idea that E.T. is visiting us sometimes crashes and burns, and has a particular penchant for our DNA, is actually nothing of the sort. Enter Mac Tonys. I rather liken Mac to a Fortean equivalent of the Sex Pistols and the Ramones. Mac would probably before I, before I cite the Smiths or R-A-M or R-E-M, but hey, that's how it goes. When in 1976, both bands firmly saved rock music from the bloated stodge of groups like Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, and yes, and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Palmer, and they didn't do so just because they could. No, their actions were prompted by the fact that A, the dinosaurs of rock had become utterly irrelevant and redundant, and B, a new, fresh approach was sorely needed. Such is the case with the beliefs of many of the long-term players within ufology who are today about as relevant to the actual subject matter as a pterodactyl or woolly mammoth is to the 21st century. Even a relative novice cannot fail to notice that the UFO issue has a distinct atmosphere about it that screams manipulation, deception, and staged-managed trickery. In other words, yes, there is a real UFO phenomenon, and it has nothing to do with Pentagon generals. CIA spooks' mistaken identity are outright hoaxing and fakery, but it may have nothing to do with literal extraterrestrials as well. What if there exists alongside us a distinct stealth, a race of incredibly ancient beings who may be native to our planet, who are perhaps eons ago our technological masters, but who today may well be in the wane? What if, as a means to move amongst us, they have ingeniously passed themselves off as visitors from far-off worlds? And what if we, those of us who delve into the world of the UFO, and whose lives have encountered such entities have fallen for their Machiavellian ruses time and time again. Such are the questions that are at the heart of the Mactanis, the crypto-terrestrials. As Mac skillfully demonstrates, UFOs and their shadowy crews most assuredly do exist. Their ties to us are both long-standing and vital. They want us to believe they are extraterrestrials. Arguably, they even need us to believe they are extraterrestrials, but in reality, they are merely Oscar-deserving actors endlessly performing stage plays that have successfully kept the human race in the dark for countless generations. With the long-awaiting publication of Max the Crypto-Terrestrials, however, their era of deceit and manipulation may well be coming to a close, providing that is what we do not continue to be seduced and enchanted by their cosmic lies. Nick Redfern. Chapter 1 looking for aliens. Looking down from a sufficient distance, human habitation recedes to the nearest glimmer. As night devours are the continents, our seeming dominion vanishes, replaced by a scattered constellation. The haughty gleam of our cities suddenly as substantial as a skin of campfires. As the dark deepens, we realize with mounting unease just how tenuous our presence is. The mountains, prairies, and lakes denuded of daylight taunt us with their enormity. Then there are the oceans, 
almost entirely vacant of man-made lights. Our seas, so often taken for granted, are like vast tombs from which even the most unseemly phantasms might emerge. We ply their waters at our own peril, distantly aware that we might find ourselves in the company of others. The earth is ancient, its biosphere only slightly less so. For four billion years, our world has secreted life. The advent of Homo sapiens is alarmingly recent in comparison. We're like foundlings washed upon some alien shore, stifling our fears by pretending to be a feeble omnipotence. Having launched spacecraft to the outer planets and inspected the crater-pocked wastes of Mars through the unblinking eyes of rovers, it's easy to entertain the idea that we are the first evolution's sole successful stab at the phenomenon we casually term intelligence. Yet, as we watch night erode the familiar highways and stadiums and ever-encroaching suburbs, our confidence falters. Already technologically... Forecasting envisions a near future populated by our artificially intelligent offspring, rather than our biological ones. Perhaps as our most cherished certainties crumble in the glow of a new century full of danger, portent, and enigma, it's become relatively easy to contemplate the presence of the Other, capital O, Other. Not an Other to our planet, but one predating our own genetic regime. Something unspoken and ancient, yet nevertheless amenable to science, an intelligence with an almost human face until recently content to abide in the shadows of our complacency. But since the middle of the last century, it seems to have asserted itself with a vigor hit heart to, or here, or sorry, here found only in the domain of folklore. Understandably daunting, we relegate its existence to the margins of our perception, hallucinations, war fevers, misunderstandings, natural phenomena, delusions, butchered recollections of dreams best left forgotten. We see lights dancing in our sky and invoke impossible meteorites or explanations like landed vehicles accompanied by surreal humanoids become military test aircraft and diminutive test pilots. The emaciated creatures seen aboard a parrot spacecraft are more portentously within rock-walled caverns or summarily dismissed as sheerest fantasy, or at best as the spawn of novel brain dysfunctions. In the decades since 1947, dawn of the contemporary UFO era, we've confronted a parade of strangeness that has rallied uncritically enthusiasts and rattled entrenched authority figures leaving a bizarre residue that defies attempts at categorization as certainly as it elicits hypothesis it began this book pursuing or i began this book pursuing the commonalities between the ufo phenomenon and the equally bewildering spectacle of our emerging technological future I was especially intrigued by the prospect of humans becoming something other than strictly biological, increasing viewed as a necessary, evolu or a necessary evolutionary step in the wake of an imminent singularity, a moment in history in which our intelligence, augmented and disseminated by machines, transcends the imaginable. My working hypothesis that alien visitation was best viewed in cybernetic terms remains a valid paradigm for interpreting the arrival of an alien intelligence on this planet. But the more I read and contemplate, the more 
post-biological theory seems lacking. While I could readily envision a global invasion directed by an unseen machine intelligence, the enduring nature of the UFO spectacle forced me to rethink my assumptions. Like ufologist Jacques Vallée, I viewed our response to the appearance of apparent non-human vehicles in our skies as the work of deliberate psychological conditioning, probably, but not necessarily, benevolent. Contrary to popular perceptions, UFOs are far from a recent occurrence. Written and oral accounts point to an experience of exceptional age and patience. If alien encounters were the work of some godlike artificial intelligence, an omniscient pacemaker sowing memes in an effort to ensure our evolution conformed to some unknown alien ideal, then we might reasonably expect it to remain hidden. This would neatly account for the lack of hard evidence that would force the UFO question out of theoretical limbo and into the mainstream. A post-biological overseer, something along the lines of the inscrutable black monolith in 2001, A Space Odyssey, would have a vested interest in obscurity. As biological beings, we might even lack the perceptual acumen to properly discern its presence. This, I reasoned, explained the UFO phenomenon's recurrence in world folklore. Perhaps it had succeeded in insinuating itself into our collective unconscious. As abducted, Whitley Strieber has suggested alien contact, whatever alien might ultimately mean, might be the process of evolution. Looks like the human mind. The primary challenge to this mythological approach was to explicitly... Oh, was the explicitly physical nature of so many encounters, including but by no means limited to the relative recent epidemic of abductions, in which witnesses report being kidnapped from workaday surroundings and subjected to novel medical tests. This seemed remarkably crude for an intelligence as subtle and as abiding as the entity I had imagined. If recent developments in our own technology are any indication at all, we will probably harness much less intrusive techniques within the next few decades. For an intelligence thousands or millions of years superior to our own, to stoop to such clinical levels struck me as absurd. Of course, the very idea of an artificially emplaced psychosocial conditioning system hinges on absurdity. Valet and John Keel, author of the paranormal masterpiece The Mothman Prophecies, have written extensively on the nonsensical elements that accompany so many accounts of assumed extraterrestrial visitation. This absurdity only makes sense if the phenomenon isn't as it seems, but rather appeals to our collective unconscious, for reasons we can only guess. Or so I thought. Finally, I wondered the unthinkable. What if the antics of the absurd humanoids documented by Valet weren't the work of some overarching intelligence? What if they happened just as reported without the need to invoke externally imposed psychosocial thermostats? This notion struck me as deliciously ironic. It suggested that the encounters with non-humans that, folk, that haunt our folklore were real, but not necessarily projections preying on our gullibility. Could fairies and elves and all their mythical successors be distorted representations of an actual species? 
While curiously appealing, the idea seemed totally orthogonal to science. Psychologists maintain that legendary little people are beings of the mind, the brain's instinctive attempt to populate the darkness. They're also quick to point out that modern accounts of spindly gray aliens are almost certainly due to fantasy-prone personalities, poorly trained therapists, and hallucinations experienced during episodes of sleep paralysis. This analysis is attractive on several levels. It neatly does away with the specter of the other we repeatedly encounter in myths. It also assuages our fears that the world might be fair game for dispassionate ET scientists with their glittering probes and omnipotent saucers. Also, it fails. This book documents a most unconventional slant on the enduring UFO mystery. In The Crypto-Terrestrials, I attempt to reconcile mythological and contemporary accounts of little people in a coherent picture. In many ways, the, um, the image that emerges is at least as frightening as my original cybernetic premise. It's much closer to home, vastly less abstract and tantalizingly amenable to scientific testing. I propose that at least some accounts of alien visitation can be attributed to a humanoid species indigenous to the Earth, a sister race that has adapted to our numerical superiority by developing a surprisingly robust technology. The explicitly reproductive overtones that color may encounter suggest that these indigenous aliens are imperiled by a malady that has gone uncured throughout the eons we have coexisted. Driven by a puzzling mixture of hubris and existential desperation, they seek to perpetuate themselves by infusing their gene pool with human DNA. While existing at the very margins of our ordinary human perceptions, they have succeeded in realms practically unexplored by known terrestrial science, reinventing themselves at will and helping to orchestrate a misinformation campaign of awe-inspiring scope. It is the intelligence behind the close encounter experience using the science fictional devices as a way of interacting with us, much how a primatologist communicates with an orphaned monkey. Via a hand puppet. If so, how to account for descriptions of bug-like entities from populations who haven't been primed to know what an alien should look like? Maybe the ubiquitous gray is simply a costume that works, in which case one can't help but yearn. for a glimpse of next year's fashions. For too long, we've called them aliens, assuming that we represent our planet's best and brightest. Maybe that's exactly what they want us to think. Chapter 2. Misdirection. Every few nights, I get out of my laser pointer and indulge my cats in a frenetic game of chase. Cats are natural hunters, 
and they're effectively incapable of not looking at the quickly moving red dot that I project onto the carpet, walls, or any piece of furniture that happens to be in its path. To my cats, the red dot possesses its own vitality. It exists as a distinct entity. While they may see me holding the pointer, they can't or won't be distracted by such things once the button is pressed and the living room is suddenly alive with a luminous vermin. So they chase it, and if they get close, even take swipes at it. I make the red dot flee, and I disappear in what seems like a concession of defeat, which, of course, only further arouses the cat's predatory curiosity. All the while, I'm controlling the red dot. I'm taking pains to make it behave like something intelligible. Just waving the pointer around the room wouldn't be any fun, so I make it climb, jump, and scuttle when cornered. Even though the laser's impervious to obstructions, this sense of physicality seems to be the element that makes chasing the laser so engaging for both the cats and for me. I can't help but be reminded of our continuing search for our assumed extraterrestrial vehicles. UFO sightings demonstrate many of the same aspects of a typical feline laser hunt. Mysterious disappearances, impossible maneuvers, and a predilection for trickery. The apparent desire to be seen despite or because of a technologically presumed or technology presumed to be far in advance of our own. More than one UFO researcher has noted that UFOs behave more like projections or holograms than nuts and bolts craft, an observation that begs the nature of the intelligence during the projecting. According to astrophysicist Valet, UFOs are part of a psychosocial conditioning system by which we perceive rewards are doled out to reconcile for the dearth of irrefutable physical evidence. The phenomenon, whatever its ultimate nature, ostensibly denies itself, thus enabling the very game it's intent on playing with us. We see that sudden spark of red light. We pounce. This time we'll catch it for sure. My interest in UFOs crystallized in elementary school upon the discovery of Gary Kinder's Light Years, an account of the alleged contacts of Swiss cultist Billy Meyer. I wasn't entirely sold by Kinder's book, but my interest was piqued even though the emphatically human-looking extraterrestrials described by Meyer troubled me on some unspoken level. Later encounters with books about exobiological creatures only made Meyer's story sound all the more absurd. Not only did I find the commonly depicted greys more convincingly alien, I considered the body of abductee literature infinitely more compelling than tales of sage galactic emissaries. Even if most accounts of bedroom visitations could be explained in terms of sleep paralysis, there seemed to be a genuinely so signal or a genuine signal embedded in the pop culture background noise. Throughout high school and college, I refined my study of UFO-themed literature and came away thoroughly disillusioned, but oddly invigorated. Classic narratives such as John Fuller's The Interrupted Journey and Jack Valley's Dimensions, an expanded version of his seminal mythological analysis, Passport to Magonia, convinced me that the believers had it wrong. 
as did the majority of self-proclaimed skeptics. I've since waded through hundreds of books about the alleged alien presence on our planet and came away largely convinced that we're sharing our world with an advanced form of intelligence. While we not necessarily extraterrestrial, this intelligence is certainly not human in any normal sense. It interacts with us in a manner that at times seems comprehensible, which isn't what one would expect of dispassionate observers or mere extraterrestrial anthropologists. That we've seen traces of its existence at all alludes to either its technological fallibility or its concerted desire to be seen. Both possibilities are disturbing from conventional exobiological and ufological perspectives. The aliens, whatever they are, aren't simply visiting. They've quietly taken up residence. The more I research the history and morphology of alien contact, the more I become convinced the reigning extraterrestrial hypothesis, the ETH, was profoundly lacking. But even the most lucid opponents of the ETH, aside from offering vague, albeit endlessly enticing, references to other dimensions and parallel universes, seemed dumbstruck by a phenomenon's absurdity. I had yet to read of a plausible means by which the alien's homeworld could intersect our own, allowing a steady stream of UFO knots. We typically assume interdimensional travel must involve arcane cosmological machinery, such as a wormhole or a stargate. But I became increasingly drawn to the idea that our visitor's method of travel is less flashy from a technical perspective and more understandable in terms of earthly, if bizarre, phenomenon. This led me to a growing suspicion that the aliens typically attributed are typically attributed to the extrasolar planets are less advanced than they lead us to believe. In fact, I think the case can be made that we're dealing with a surprisingly vulnerable intelligence that relies largely on subterfuge and disinformation to achieve its goals, a theme I attempt to address in later chapters. And as outlandish as it may seem, I've been forced to wrestle with the notion that our relationship with these others is far more widespread and intimate than even paranoid dramatizations or dramatizations of UFO spectacle would, lead, would have us believe. These dawning suspicions are borne out, at least in part, by world folklore with its preoccupation with little people in our midst, as well as by recent discoveries that suggest the history of our species is more enigmatic than we'd like to admit. We may well share our planet with crypto-hominids that have mastered the art of camouflage in order to coexist with us. More potentiously, their agenda might be within our ability to grasp and understand, but to do so we must suspend the assumption that we're dealing with something as quaint as E.T. astronauts. The truth unnerving seems much closer to home, threatening to displace our sense of self in a most unexpected manner. I sometimes see my name used in the conjunction with the word ufology. <coughs> Loosely defined, ufology is the study of the UFO phenomenon. This includes disciplines ranging from metallurgy to psychology, 
From neuroanatomy to string theory, the best UFO literature benefits from the recent inclusion of as many perspectives as, as possible, even those that would seem to refute the fairy phenomenon under investigation. The pronounced lack of such books is predominantly why it's fashionable for intellectuals to adopt a scoffing, can't-be-bothered approach when addressing UFOs. A most intriguing reaction given that UFO simply denotes an aerial object of unknown origin. Am I a ufologist? I don't know. Maybe if I am, I should probably qualify the U word with theoretical. There are theoretical physicists and literary theorists. Why not theoretical ufologists? The ufological community suffers from creative anima. It has a disheartening tendency to refute dissenting voices. Even those within its ranks. With tired screeds that unnecessarily polarize the debate, such as it is. Between cautious advocates of the extraterrestrial hypothesis and a know-nothing science popularizers who seem genuinely incapable of considering the UFO inquiry outside the cognitive barriers posed by the decades of cheesy sci-fi cinema and the legacy of myriad quote-unquote true believers. So it's no real surprise why ufology is marginal. While its luminaries might noisily claim otherwise, ufology collectively wants to be marginal, with the lamentable exception of a few spokesmen who feel the need to explain the phenomenon's intricacies to a wary public, often in the guise of a would-be political discourse. The ostensible UFO community remains afraid of stepping into the rude glow of widespread public attention. It has a right to be afraid, having doting constructing, having dotingly constructed a theoretical house of straw. Many ufological proponents secretly prefer the tenuous camaraderie of their peers to the much more exciting prospect of being taken seriously by science. This isn't to condemn UFO research as anti-scientific. Perhaps the only reason the field remains afloat at all is the pioneering effort of scientists such as James McDonald, J. Allen Hynek, and Jacques Vallée. At the era of genuine hypothesis seems to be nearing an end, the old guard, inexplicably enamored of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, is now engaged in little more than ideological turf wars. The boons of speculation have been quietly set aside in favor of models that make just enough sense to allow their defenders to issue brittle proclamations with semi-straight faces. Meanwhile, the enigma persists, as always, seemingly just beyond our comprehension, and we have the nerve to wonder why. Chapter 3 UFOs and ETH. What do we know about the UFO phenomenon? What can researchers agree on, if anything? I certainly don't expect them to hop on the crypto-terrestrial bandwagon. Neither do I expect ufologists to agree on the ever-nebulous interdimensional hypothesis, which raises at least as many reality-altering questions as it purports to answer. At the same time, the null hypothesis, maintaining that UFOs can be universally ascribed to misidentified natural phenomenon and sightings of unconventional earthly aircraft, has grown discrepant and toothless. Fashionable debunking aside, up to and including the brittle posturing of self-styled alien experts such as the SETI's Institute, Seth Shostak, something absolutely fascinating is happening. 
taking stock of the situation, I'm tempted to reduce the UFO riddle to a few guiding tenets, which I think can be reasonably supported by the evidence provided since the modern era of sightings began more than 60 years ago. A list of pertinent characteristics might go like this. Regardless of their origin, UFOs are physically real. UFOs are sometimes observed, engaged in behavior which can only be described as intelligently directed. The psychological and sociological impact of the phenomenon is especially enduring and should be a topic of paramount interest for scholars and researchers in fields as desperate as cultural anthropology, aeronautics, and neurology. 4. The sometimes theatrical behavior of unidentified flying objects suggests the possibility of some form of dialogue, whether directed by ourselves or orchestrated by the phenomenon itself. Likewise, certain military encounters in which weapon systems have been apparently manipulated in intelligent fashion invite the prospect that the UFO intelligence is at least partially amenable to understanding in terms of human psychology. If the UFO intelligence is indigenous to this planet, then the pronounced extraterrestrial flavor of so many of our most hollowed, if controversial, beliefs may be an attempt to convince us the answers to the UFO riddle lie somewhere in the stars. So we gaze upward in wonder and fear while the phenomenon continues unabated and overlooked. UFOs cruise our skies with an implacable arrogance. If our visitors are indeed extrasolar aliens, then they have a most curious penchant for drama. If, on the other hand, we're observing the activities of a crypto-terrestrial civilization, the apparent desire to be seen can be readily explained in terms of misdirection. Alien imagery is the perfect cover, as our own military understands all too well. Greg Bishop chronicles just one example in Project Beta, a devastating critique of Black Ops Underworld and its readiness to exploit extraterrestrial mythology in order to deflate serious interest in secret Air Force projects. By utilizing our innate fascination with interplanetary visitors, the crypto-terrestrials have ensured that any accidental sightings of their craft will be ascribed to the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Oh, sorry, extraterrestrial hypothesis. Sorry, extraterrestrial hypothesis. The mainstream media, quick to debunk for fear of inciting ridicule, thus ignores credible sightings and inadvertently assists the crypto-terrestrial agenda, and if by some chance the sighting is undeniable, its cultural connotations will almost certainly relegate it to collective Fortean attics. In a related vein, I don't think it's accidental that so many UFOs are adorned with mesmerizing flashing lights. While one can always argue that conspicuous lights indicate the presence of some truly unearthly propulsion system, it's just as possible that their deliberate and relatively low-tech attempts to make a rather ordinary conveyance look unearthly, thereby eliciting the excitement that very E.T. enthusiasts whose sightings are certain to be ignored are at best published in some obscure journal or website.
As Valet has astutely noted, many accounts of UFO landings have the undeniable flavor of staged events. The controversial events at Rendlesham, for instance, seem to make sense only if they were intended to be witnessed, perhaps in an attempt to further impress us with the extraterrestrial memetics. In the same vein, the famous Washington National Sightings of 1952, in which objects were tracked over Washington, D.C. with ground and air-based radar, confirmed visually by multiple witnesses smack of an orchestrated event intended to arrest our intention. Intriguingly, the objects over Washington were limited to inexplicably sources of light, not the structured crafts described in other notable cases. Could the UFO intelligence use a form of holograph, uh, holographics to trick us into thinking we're observing tangible, physical vehicles? The possibilities can't be discounted. Michael Talbot supports the holographic theory in his book, The Holographic Universe. Noting that some UFOs displays have more in common with sophisticated projections of images than spacecraft. The same can be said of many close encounters of the third or fourth kind in which witnesses report anomalous spatial effects. Some witnesses have described the interior of apparent alien vehicles as considerably larger than the craft as seen from the outside. This odd detail, so bizarre when considered in isolation, might be explained as a perceptual trick enacted by the aliens to render their vehicles more impressive than they really are. Upon exiting, a witness would be more likely to describe the experience in otherworldly terms and be less believable. The UFO debate has become undeniably polarized, especially in the United States. Jacques Vallée has attributed the fixation with the extraterrestrial hypothesis to the urge to kick the tires, quote-unquote, which seems to suggest that Americans are skeptical of alien visitations without hard evidence. Rather paradoxically, polls show that Americans' acceptance of alien visitors in nuts-and-bolts spacecraft is alive and even thriving. With the end of the 20th century's rash of UFO abduction reports fueling belief in both extraterrestrials and a probable government cover-up. This predisposition to address the UFO enigma in predominantly aerospace terms has starved objective research by alienating mainstream scientists bored with the unsubstantiated tales of close encounters or odd lights in the sky by implying the phenomenon is necessarily physical. If physical, the argued debunkers, the alien presence should be self-evident, especially in our era of automated surveillance. Equally lamentable, little or no effort is expended trying to fathom the psychology of extraterrestrials. SETI, for instance, remains largely a technological effort with hypothetical aliens governed by the same conceits and prejudices that influence the field's guiding researchers. This casual anthropomorphism undermines the mainstream's dealings with extraterrestrial intelligence. Needless to say, it completely bypasses the idea that some form of non-human intelligence may already be in our midst. If non-humans are in fact at our doorstep, it stands to reason that they would exploit our predilection for space aliens. 
if they possess a technology even slightly more advanced than ours, staging extraterrestrial landings may prove irresistible. But the extraterrestrial bias is even more damaging in scope. Its assumption that the cosmos will inevitably yield its secrets to our ever-improving instrumentality, or sorry, our instrumentality capability lures us from other equally enticing models of reality that may have much more bearing on the prospects of non-human life and consciousness. Shamans of so-called primitive cultures have long relied on altered states to communicate with otherworldly intelligences. Psychedelic drugs commonly facilitate or heighten this communication, implying a deep-rooted neurological mechanism. The various altered states described by abductees suggest a common origin, allowing the possibility that others might exploit mind-to-mind communication as casually as we use cell phones and broadband internet. If a shadow race of earthly humanoids has achieved some form of telepathy, we may well be on our way of bridging the gulf. Powerful computers have already been seen to work simulating the interactions that define thought on the subcellular level. Electron microscopy has revealed proton microtubules thought to make use of quantum effects. British mathematician Roger Penrose, an early collaborator with Stephen Hawking, has claimed that our brain's quantum nature prohibits the construction of artificial minds. The state aimed at artificial intelligence research. Although the verdict certainly isn't in, and may not be until scientists unravel the mind-brain dichotomy. It's interesting to note the role of parallel universes in a world governed by quantum mechanics. Physicist David Dutch, for instance, advocates the still-controversial many-worlds interpretation, the MWI, of quantum theory in which our universe bifurcates each time a subatomic events wave function collapses. Taking to its dizzying extreme, the MWI allows for a near-endless pageant of universes to encompass all conceivable outcomes. Dutch bases his verdict in part on the prospective success of quantum computers, devices, and may one day appear to perform calculations by harnessing subatomic processes and other closely related interdimensional worlds. Could the human brain suitably tune produce comparable results given reports of humanoid beings materializing and disappearing? It's tempting to speculate that our visitors have mastered a technology of consciousness able to manipulate their own wave functions and skip back and forth between multiple universes at the speed of thought. This is one admittedly colorful explanation for the lack of physical evidence. They might lurk in hyperspace as well as familiar 3D space-time. Moreover, this form of travel might be accomplished without the need for energy-intensive machinery. If shamanic experiences are any indication, the ability to transcend space and time might be more fitting subject for parapsychologists than theoretical physicists. Given that consciousness is largely a quantum function deeply entangled with the rest of the cosmos, it is unreasonable to seek out traces of the alien among us. Maybe the signal SETI astronomers await will emanate from the depths of the inner self, cunningly disguised as our human consciousness. Also intriguing are the accounts of tulpas, which are either objects of human-like entities crafted by pure 
thought, according to certain esoteric Buddhist beliefs, capable of carrying out tasks on behalf of their creators, Telpas aren't unlike the maddeningly transient occupants seen in or around spacecraft. Sometimes digging for soil specimens in an almost periodic reenactment of the Apollo moon landings. While a more conventional flesh and body explanation remains more central proposal, we would be timid to avoid addressing the UFO phenomenon's parapsychological aspects. I find it likely that an indigenous population of aliens would have experimented along occult lines out of sheer need for secrecy. A nuts and bolts technology can go a long way toward ensuring anonymity in the face of an intrusive human civilization, but the ability to deceive and directly influence the fabric of the mind itself would be even more effective and perhaps less resource intensive. Thus demonstrating the existence of indigenous humanoids remains problematic. We might hope to catch up with them, forcing them to reveal themselves in a most surreal form of disclosure, sought by proponents of exopolitics, given startling advancements in quantum physics and computer sciences. We may be closer to this pivotal moment than we may know. Given the vast resources of space itself, one eventually wonders why aliens are here at all, assuming they are. After all, a robust civilization could remain comfortably hidden, drifting among the asteroids ensconced in cometary ice and buried beneath the lunar surface. So, despite the obvious anthropocentric objections, I suspect the aliens, for lack of a better term, are insatiably curious about us, possibly driven to distractions by our presence. Perhaps we shouldn't be overly surprised to find that their world, as foreign as it promises to be, virtually revolves around our own. Maybe one of the reasons we have yet to make irrefutable contact with the extraterrestrials is because ET civilizations tend to reach a point of terminal decadence, an erotic cul-de-sac that precludes exploration. Compare and contrast such an implosion to the singularity too many of us are waiting for with bated breath. Sufficiently advanced ETs might well away the millennia in a hedonistic stupor. Brains are their equivalent melded to pleasure-generating devices. It's even possible the pleasure-generating devices themselves may be the intelligences with whom we eventually establish first contact. SETI, by definition, is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, ETI. So what happens with the SETI research when the search comes to an end? Seth Shostek, Jill Tarter, and their colleagues are not comparative anthropologists. They're not versed in linguistics or biology or art. They merely search. If a signal is detected, will they deign to release their grip on the ETI inquiry and allow more capable minds to spearhead the investigation? In paranoid moments, and there can never be enough of them, I have to wonder if SETI has any real plans to disseminate discovery of an ET message. After all, acknowledgement of the signal, while certainly hard-won, vindication of many scientists, could conceivably trigger the end of the search, and with it the end of the SETI Institute as we know it. Many UFO encounters seem less likely a chance sighting of extraterrestrial hardware than staged events conceived by an overarching intelligence that may have little to do with the will of perceived occupants. The robust capabilities 
resources at the disposal of a galaxy-spanning post-singularity intelligence should be more than up to the task of communicating with us. Are we confident that such communication would be limited to electromagnetic exchanges in light of Ray Kurzweil's amply demonstrated law of accelerating returns, perhaps it's just as likely that our first conversation with extraterrestrials will take the form of a complex psychosocial experiment, in which unconventional flying objects may play only a small role. Although undoubtedly physical, it's an open question whether real UFOs are metallic spacecraft in the familiar sense, although in the early days of the phenomenon, researchers quickly fastened to the idea, sensing appealing parallels with their own aerospace ventures. Dispensing with the conventional notion of mere ET craft allows us to view the UFO problem as a manifestation of technologies ranging from von Neumann machines to nanobotic utility fog. If the ET intent is to test our reactions to its presence or something more profound as the phenomenon's impact on our mythology might indicate, quickly assembling ships and even aliens in from raw materials would enable the disparity of forms seen in the sky. The flexibility of nanotech construction could allow the UFO intelligence to respond by our preconceptions in real time, thereby ensuring a permanent foothold in the collective unconsciousness while it maintaining plausible deniability at least among those tasked with policing potentially subversive interactions. Anthropologists have remarked on the inability of less advanced cultures to profitably adapt to the arrival of more sophisticated cultures. UFOs, with all their attendant pageantry, including violation of military airspace and other airborne theater, are consistent with a form of deliberate invitation perhaps imposed by an intelligence that, like the monolith builders from 2001, promises to elude human comprehension. That the UFO phenomenon is so rampant argues against extraterrestrial origin and favors an intelligence with a penchant for theater. While it's possible to argue that a visiting ET civilization could be staging sightings as part of some sort of long-term social experiment or even as an acclimatization program is at least as tempting to discard the ETH entirely. But the remaining options infringe deeply on our collective sense of self, making the ETH extraterrestrial hypothesis a comforting if unworldly recourse. General, or sorry, Genuine ET visitors would probably have a little need for the conspicuous maneuvers and trace evidence that form the backbone of the ETH. In the event of alien visitation, it is likely we'd never see objects resembling recognizable craft, let alone vehicles encumbered with attention-grabbing lights and adjoining the potholes. Our own technological trajectory suggests that a full-scale planetary reconnaissance could be achieved using incredibly small devices. A nanotech smart dust, for instance, could infiltrate and reap a vast real-time harvest of information, all without our knowing, as we prepare to use such technologies to study our own planet and its inhabitants. In ever-increasing detail, we're forced to question prevailing ufological assumptions. While scintillating spaceships and irradiating landing sites are certainly cause for wonder and scientific concern, they appear as suspiciously mired in the science fantasies of the previous century. Where are the real alien technologies, hidden perhaps behind the subterfuge of motherships that have haunted our sky since at least the 1950s? If a civilization wanted to keep us preoccupied with bogus settings, 
the modern UFO spectacle would certainly seem elaborate enough to do the job. But it's difficult to imagine why ETs would bother, in turn suggesting an intelligence much closer to home. To Valet, the answer was a multiverse of interpermeable realities. The UFO knots engaging our sense of mythology because they hailed from an aspect of space-time ever so slightly removed from our own. To John Keel, both UFO displays and monster sightings were psychic distractions enforced by an unseen intelligence. Both ideas, while attractive, asked that we shed the ETH in favor of something with more immediate existential consequences. More damningly, from a research perspective, both Valet's multiverse and Keel's superspectrum beg for nothing less than a redefinition of the physical universe. It's hardly surprising that mainstream ufologists greet such ideas with mixed reactions after all the phenomenon has repeatedly demonstrated physical characteristics amenable to empirical science. Ufologists already burdened by the omnipresent giggle factor had long since ceased to speculate about the origin and purpose of UFOs in favor of obtaining physical proof. In hindsight, perhaps this was the phenomenon's intention all along. Chapter 4 The Abduction Epidemic A journeyman ufologist's introduction to the abduction phenomenon usually begins with a recounting of the capture of Betty and Barney Hill in New Hampshire in 1961. Believed at the time to be the first kidnapping of humans by UFO occupants, the Hill's accounts contains virtually all of the elements contained in later narratives which reached a near fever pitch by the mid-1990s, stoked by an obliging media and success of several influential books. There's little doubt that something unusual happened to the hills. At the very least, both Betty and Barney recalled seeing an unidentified object apparently trailing their car. The account becomes more explicit upon Barney's attempt to view the object through binoculars. Upon magnification, he witnessed a pancake-shaped vehicle sporting triangular fins and red lights. More startling yet, he could discern occupants behind a row of windows, including one rapidly staring humanoid he found especially threatening. The ensuing abduction has become the stuff of ufological legend as has the Hill's bout with missing time, an element that recurs through later accounts. Under hypnosis by Boston psychiatrist Dr. Benjamin Simon, Betty recalled a conspicuously chatty alien leader whose human demeanor was only slightly less outlandish than his bizarre questions. Ironically, the Hill abduction, widely cited as one of the best cases to suggest an extraterrestrial origin for UFOs, is at least an amenable to indigenous beings engaged in deliberate, deliberate psychodrama. The leader's presentation, complete with 3D star map showing alien trade routes, seems staged. His queries sampled from B-movie science fiction. Nevertheless, one comes away from the Hill episode forced to confront what was almost certainly a real encounter. But the reigning interpretation that the Hills were the victims of a chance run-in with E.T. interlopers owes more of its appeal to the mythological syntax at our disposal than any particular piece of hard evidence. Barney's testimony, while 
deemed sincere by Simon is notably less explicit than Betty's and may well betray unwitting contamination from his wife. Inquiry into the nascent abduction phenomenon was forced to adapt to the now familiar reproductive overtones upon the rediscovery of the Antonio Villas Boas case in 1957. Boas, a farmer, claimed to a forcible encounter with a UFO in which he had sex with a fair-skinned female. Like today's greys, Boas described his seductress as short and large-eyed, with a lipless mouth and pointed chin that suggests the cover painting for Whitley Strieber's best-selling Communion, not published until 1987. Though exotic, she was far from the specimen expected from mere erotic fantasies. Boas himself described her as paradoxically repellent and desirable. Reading his account, initially withheld by the UFO community for being too outlandish, one wonders in what ways Boas might have been coerced into his sexual encounter, an ordeal that left him oddly emasculated, resigned to having served as mere breeding stock. Although critics are quick to point out his possibly self-aggrandizing reference to himself as a prize stud. Before Boas was escorted off the spaceship, the woman pointed significantly to her abdomen and in the direction of the sky. Advocates of the extraterrestrial hypothesis have interpreted this as a reference to the woman E.T.'s heritage, but at the same time, they've effectively ignored the troublesome prospect of genetic compatibility. Granted that Boas had intercourse with an extraterrestrial, what are the chances that two independently evolved humanoid species could mate in any viable sense? In Revelations, Jacques Vallée compares the feasibility of conceiving a human-alien hybrid to that of a human attempting to breed with an insect. Certainly, if Boas encountered a genuine E.T., then they have achieved a most remarkable degree of impersonation, not an altogether impossible achievement for a civilization capable of traveling between the stars, but one that arouses substantial skepticism. The law of parsimony begs the speculation that the beings who abducted Boas were human in at least some essential respects. As Valet has noted, we seem to be dealing with the phenomenon that adapts to the reigning symbolism of any given era. That said, perhaps the idea that we're dealing with something fundamentally other as a ploy enacted by a planetary mind of which we're inextricably entangled. Contemporary abduction reports are fraught with much of the same ambiguity. While an abductee's surroundings may seem bizarre enough to be an adult witness, Evidence of extrasolar origin is at best superficial. Occasionally, an abductee reports visionary episodes apparently instigated by the abductors. With the assistance of audiovisual technology that recalls Betty Hill's famous 3D star map. Abduction researchers like Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs are forever on the lookout for hypnotically derived alien symbols perhaps glimpsed on walls or uniforms in hopes of finding validating tools for future research. But what too often passes unmentioned is the relative dearth of reports involving transport from the abductee's normal environment to that of the supposed E.T. In many cases, no mention is made of a UFO or spaceship. The transition from here to there proceeds with unnerving haste. 
often accompanied by partial amnesia and a wordless certainty of having been taken vast distances. Reports of actually visiting otherworldly locales common fare in the heyday of the contactees are seldom encountered in the abduction literature of the 1990s. The quintessential alien environment is Spartan, unencumbered by decor. The aliens are characterized as colorless, dispassionate creatures whose behavior resembles that of hive-dwelling insects or even machines. As in the Hill case, there is sometimes a leader in attendance, although the tone of the abductions is far from conversational. Any wisdom imparted by the aliens is predominantly vague or philosophically obstinate. And while the beings can seem terrifically unearthly in the flesh, they avoid explicit references that might shed light on their origins and purposes. Debunkers have pounced on the endlessly elusive nature of the abduction experience in order to expediently dismiss it. In the demon-haunted world, for example, Carl Sagan laments the fact that abductees have yet to emerge with artifacts that would demonstrate the physical reality of their experiences. Many UFO occupant incidents have a surreal flavor that initially seems to contradict the phenomenon's physicality. If some run-ins with UFO knots are staged events engineered to encourage belief and subsequent dismissal of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, they perhaps couldn't have done a better job than the 1955 Hopkinsville invasion in which the Sutton family of Kentucky was terrorized by a clutch of diminutive goblins, who reportedly levitated and proved immune to gunfire. Author C. Clark's maxim notwithstanding, the Hopkinsville goblins are an intriguing fusion of the real and the magical. Their abilities seem calculated to tarnish any empirical approach to the extraterrestrial hypothesis by introducing elements of the fantastic. Indeed, these same elements would eventually be used as ammunition but by would-be skeptics determining to denounce the account. While not necessarily out of the realm of possibility for genuine ETs, the entity's goblin-like appearance argues for an origin in keeping with folklore. If they are real, then the reality might not be as amenable to the ETH as researchers would like. Conversely, the desire to debunk the Sutton family's claims appears little more than a protest against the episode's surreal nature. UFO researchers like their aliens to abide by the 20th century's preconceptions of what alien beings should look and act like. Entities like those observed in the Hopkinsville's compromise a kind of viral assault on conformist ufology by insinuating themselves into reigning conceits and quietly subverting the ETH dogma. Ultimately, their existence is marginalized and becomes yet less ufological than Fortean. We're asked, in effect, to consider the Hopkinsville visitor and their like as somehow separated and distinct from hardcore case files that more readily suggest extraterrestrial visitation. We do so at our own peril. Even UFO cases essential to advocates of the ETH sometimes betray a psychosocial agenda. Dogfights and radar visual engagements with UFOs, while impressive evidence that the phenomenon is anything but simply visionary, also present the specter of, of inexplicably playful dispositions. These clashes with dogmatic assurances that extrasolar aliens would refrain from such childish behavior. Encounters with Hopkinsville-type beings demonstrate an undeniable commonality with both folkloric sources and the contemporary UFO phenomenon. 
Taken together, these inconvenient similarities force us to question the easy certainties that prevailed in the 1950s, when visiting space aliens seemed all but inevitable. Limbo cases, like Hopkinsville, allow us to assess the phenomenon in a brighter, less sullied light. While one can argue endlessly in favor of a literal extraterrestrial interpretation, a holistic approach leads us to consider the UFO intelligence not only wants to perpetuate itself via dramatic encounters with ostensibly uh, occupants, but instead tends to discredit its own mechanisms. It stages exciting UFO events that infect both the research community and the popular imagination, knowing that the phenomenon's inherent absurdity will eventually inspire cognitive dissonance and undermine attempts to arrive at an indictment. We're thus conditioned to accept the ETH one moment only succumb to the giggle factor the next, never peering past the curtain to see the agenda behind the special effects. We're kept in a sort of amnesic stupor, occasionally graced by visits from what can only be structured ET craft and then deflated by the latest bizarre occupant report or account of missing time. Our infatuation with the unknown is systematically provoked and dismantled by a mimetic campaign that's never less than astute in its grasp of human belief. Before abductees, there were contactees. Former Ministry of Defense UFO investigator Nick Pope deals refreshingly with the contactee movement in his book The Uninvited. Questioning the conventional wisdom that all those claiming benevolent contact with human-looking ETs were hoaxers and cranks. Instead, noting the distinct vein of duplicity that accompanies the history of paranormal visitation, he proposes that at least some of the contactees may have been dealing with genuine others. That these others made their first appearance as space travelers shortly after the creation of nuclear weapons while typically attributing their social factors may rely on their terrestrial origins. If you lived among savages with increasingly destructive devices at their disposal, it may prove all too tempting to intervene, but in a way that denies your own existence, at the same time, it propagates your message. We share our planet with indigenous humanoids, and I think the case for terrestrial origin is at least as robust for the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Then it would certainly appear that we're numerically, if not technically, superior. The others would be forced to live at the periphery of normal human perception. Perhaps utilizing techniques analogous to recent breakthroughs with brain-machine interfaces and mind control. I find it highly suspicious, for example, that so many encounters with apparent aliens involve exposure to chemicals and needlessly inserted into the victim's head. Sometimes close encounters witnesses are asked to drink noxious tasting beverages prior to conversing with the crew, be subject to needle prods, or subject to imagery that can be ascribed as psychedelic conditioning. It would certainly seem that aliens, terrestrial or otherwise, prefer to alter our perceptions prior to establishing contact. Given the selfish motives attributed to UFO occupants by researchers like Bud Hopkins, the most coherent explanation for those techniques is that we're being compelled to participate without the luxury of trusting our senses. Thus, even discounting the innumerable reports of missing time, the abduction experience is consummately secretive. 
and aspects that fails to concur with the popular image of dispassionate ET scientists who presumably care as little about our earthly affairs as lab workers sympathize with the rats. The mere fact that the ETs post-hypnotic commands to forget the experience can be overridden with such surprising ease suggests we're dealing with something other than so extrasolar aliens. Whoever these others are, their grasp of our psychical vocabulary is nothing short of startling. This enduring human aspect suggests gently as long an intimate relations with our species, not the quick pragmatic harvesting we might reasonably expect from genuine extraterrestrials. But if the other's interest in reproduction can be accepted at face value, and its ubiquitous nature indicates that it's an integral component of the contact experience by almost any measure, what does it pretend? Once we finish sifting through esoteric hypothesis, we're left with the troubling prospect that at least one ultra-terrestrial society in our midst is suffering from potentially debilitating genetic syndromes, and they're desperate and savvy enough to harvest our population for a possible long-term fix. I don't think this implies malice. If the situation were reversed, we'd almost certainly do the same thing, taking equally distressing measures to ensure our anonymity. Needless to say, the anthropological considerations are enormous. Delving further requires a, requires a healthy sense of recreational paranoia, as well as the ability to suspend deep-rooted preconceptions. The abduction phenomenon quite rightly invites skepticism, but is often misinformed. Unlike many would-be debunkers, Terry Matheson's book, Alien Abductions, reveals an astute familiarity with the principal texts. John Fuller's The Interrupted Journey, Raymond Fowler's books on Betty Anderson, etc. Matheson raises valid points about the way popular authors present strange memes to an astonished, if often credulous, readership. In so doing, this sounds a scholarly alarm that writers of the paranormal ignore at their peril. I happen to agree with Matheson insofar as the influence of narrative bias is concerned. I am sympathetic to the prospect that popularly conceived alien abduction phenomenon offers a glimpse into a mythology in the making. Refreshingly, Matheson takes issue with the fellow debunkers who would have to ignore the phenomenon altogether simply because the seemingly fails to live up to the nuts and bolts standards of conformist ufology. Alien Abductions is an expose of best-known selections from the abduction literature, hardly a broad-spectrum analysis of the subject. As such, it remains a valid insight into the mythic potential of what might be a reality quite beyond our grasp. But its scope is severely limited. For example, Matheson appears content accepting the extraterrestrial hypothesis as the only sensible pro-UFO interpretation. I don't share this certainty. While there is no doubt that the phenomenon has fueled a disturbingly far-reaching contemporary mythology, exposing the questionable techniques employed by authors of abduction books does little to resolve larger, more troubling issues. To his credit, Matheson pointedly distances the abduction epidemic from the UFO phenomenon. We have yet to establish that UFOs are here to snatch humans for the purposes of some alien agenda. On the other hand, some UFOs betray what can only be uh, some form of intelligence, however rudimentary, this alone begs the question of what they're here for, assuming they came from elsewhere, and more excitingly, what the implications might be for human consciousness in the future. Kevin Randall, a co-author of the Lucid Abduction Enigma, is a sincere proponent of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. 
He's also a critic of abductions. Like Matheson, he views the UFO mystery as a distinct from claims of alien intrusions. While I appreciate this much nor distinction, I'm not certain it's necessarily warranted, especially as the extraterrestrial hypothesis remains stubbornly controversial in its own right. We could very well be dealing with indigenous non-human intelligence, in which case the assumptions of abduction debunkers whose arguments are couched in extraterrestrial terminology are stripped of their skeptical allure. For the most part, the ufological landscape remains a sparring ground for entrenched notions of dispassionate ET visitors and equally tenacious claims of popular delusions. Consequently, we've gone about attempting to debunk a phenomenon which continues to defy definition. While many, if not most, well-known abduction narratives are indeed fallible, disquieting findings from emerging or suppressed disciplines promise to reframe the debate. I suspect the truth, if we can find it, will be considerably weirder than the mere extraterrestrial visitors or sociologically induced fantasy theories. My personal take on the abduction epidemic is that many reports can indeed be attributed to novel, if perfectly non-pathological, mental states. Having experienced sleep paralysis, I can't honestly deride the common debunking claim that high percentage of bedroom visitations originate from the experience of state of immobilization and accompanying sense of presence. But sleep paralysis is not the final word. It does nothing, for example, to explain encounters that occur when the participant is fully awake. Nor can it account for abduction in cases with the witnesses or comfortably encompass cases in which a UFO is present at the time of the reported abduction. The questions that logically arise, given the limitations of the sleep paralysis hypothesis and related explanations, are simple. Who or what is responsible, and what are the implications? If we allow ourselves to concede the existence of a non-human intelligence, if only as a thought experiment, answers to this conundrum begin to show themselves, faintly but evocatively suggesting deliberate intent. A central motif of reported alien abductions as well as folkloric accounts of kidnappings by non-human beings is the goal of producing hybrid offspring, humanoid children who are able to straddle the bridge between human society and that of the others. Because of its alarming and prophetically erotic overtones, the hybridization program has become a staple ingredient in many books purporting to explain alien abductions, such as The Threat by David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins' Sight Unseen. Jacobs, Hopkins, and the peers believe that the UFO and abduction phenomenon are necessarily interlinked. UFOs are exotic vehicles used by the abductors to further their agenda. And what I've termed the silent invasion scenario, the ubiquitous greys are suffering from some sort of genetic malady and must rely on infusions of human DNA to survive, sometimes with government complicity. The hybridization program encountered in books on the abduction phenomenon implies an advanced knowledge of genetics, but if they are really an unacknowledged aspect of ourselves, their genetic prowess needn't be in advance of our own. It's likely we're genetically compatible, certainly in an unnerving prospect given that many references to strangely mannered beings seen in the wake of UFO sightings. In Sight Unseen, Bud Hopkins and Carol Rainey argue that interbreeding doesn't rule out the extraterrestrial hypothesis. By noting recent developments in transgenics, they show that different species can be paired in the laboratory, resulting in chimeras, animals with traits of two or more species, offering support to the notion that ETs could successfully mate with us. In fact, the near-future biotech economy promises a harvest of chimeric species, some exceptionally novel. Within a few years, pigs with human organs may become commonplace backups for people needing transplants. 
Understandably, ethicists are increasingly unsettled by the specter of animals with human-level intelligence. Assuming a geneticist raises to the challenge of becoming a latter-day Dr. Moreau, the medical community will be forced to grapple with the very definition of what is human. The future wood presented in Blade Runner is highly illustrative. In the film, police officers must track down and kill fugitive replicants, genetically engineered androids intent on bypassing their built-in expiration dates. Blade Runner's replicants are flesh and blood and share their genetic heritage with their creators. While one may argue that they're synthetic and hence mere machines to be utilized, their complex emergent behavior belies any such trite definitions. Hopkins and Rainey maintain that it is indeed possible for aliens to reproduce using human genetic material. While their research is often fascinating, they fail to address the anthropology of the encounter experience. More importantly, in terms of determining whether they are from here or come from somewhere else, sight unseen limits its focus to a mere handful of reports, excluding folkloric evidence that might undermine its arguments. The result, as readers of Hopkins' previous books can imagine, is highly readable but committed to an exclusively extraterrestrial interpretation. Extrasolar aliens are not. The transgenic angle allows for an illuminating reassessment of the indigenous or crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, the CTH. Crypto-terrestrial CT hybrids may be replicants tailored to survive oriented tasks such as infiltrating human society. This raises a most interesting question. If close encounters typically involve more human-like CTs such as greys, Who's to say that there isn't a rogues gallery of progressively stranger beings lurking behind the curtain? We could be dealing with a vast, intricate genomic program with no obvious roots. Depending on the specimen, casual scientific examination may give the false impression that a given CT is terrestrial. Conversely, it may be hailed as proof of extraterrestrial life. Maybe the CTs comprise a hive mind with humanoids that only one end of the spectrum. At the other end, we might find more exotic beings such as the mantis-like leaders, sometimes seen presiding over abductions. Ultimately, could the CTs be insectile? The prospect is deeply ironic given human, humanity's buried fear of the insect world. We're conditioned to accept bugs as miniature grotesques to be swatted or stepped upon. Discovering we're at the mercy of their larger, more capable cousins would be more upsetting than finding that the answer to the CT riddle is merely a disenfranchised offshoot of Homo sapien. In any case, we won't know the true face of our elusive residence unless we undertake a thorough review of occupant encounters, both in modern ufological literature and in world folklore. Even a superficial reading shows that we're likely dealing with a sister species of incredibly tenacity and a chameleon-like sense of invisibility. But if I'm correct, we mustn't be too enthralled by their abilities. Seen up close, the CTs are more than a little sympathetic. Governed by a fear of extinction and determined to persist despite our ever-encroaching global civilization... Their seeming infallibility is a studious pretense triggered in part by the advent of the nuclear era. And it's no coincidence that the modern UFO era blossomed in the aftermath of the world's most destructive and geographically intrusive war. 
Unable to disprove a negative, I have no choice but to concede that some UFO encounters may originate from space, and it would be the height of arrogance to proclaim that the extraterrestrial hypothesis and the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis are mutually exclusive. And, of course, crypto-terrestrials don't preclude interdimensional travelers either. We could be experiencing a veritable pageant of entities hailing from many locations, both within our known universe and from universes linked to ours. Candidates for the blader possibility include the insect-like creatures described by trippers who take dimethyltryptamine, otherwise known as DMT, the allegedly spirit molecule that consistency of DMT experiences invites the possibility that it literally allows access to another reality. I'm reminded of an offhand reference to white mantis-like entities offered by Philip K. Dick years before the popularization of the archetypical bug-eyed greys. Could Dick, via his experimentation with psychedelic drugs, have happened across the domain of beings similar to those described by abductees? Those questions beg for a taxonomy of the otherworldly. While many UFO abductions involved insect-like creatures, it's unclear if the greys are directly related to the beings encountered in the psychedelic realm. Confusingly, many abduction encounters feature mantis-like leaders operating in liaison with more human-like greys. Some reports suggest that greys are a subservient species, perhaps even genetically engineered drones. The ever-controversial Whitley Strieber has described inert alien bodies coming to life, likening them like diving suits used for dealing directly in the material world. Given the vast number of reported out-of-body and near-death experiences, I find it difficult to reject the proposal of non-local consciousnesses, perhaps a sufficiently advanced technology that can manipulate the soul as easily as we splice genes or mix chemicals in test tubes. If so, encounters with the extraterrestrials may help provide a working knowledge of how to modify and transfer consciousness and abilities that seem remote to the current terrestrial state of the art, but may prove invaluable in a future where telepresence and virtual reality are integral to everyday communication. Already, the capabilities of brain-machine interfaces are tantalizing like the popular perceptions of telepathy. Often, though, in a strict paranormal or even magical term. If we're sharing the planet with crypto-terrestrials, it's feasible that their anticipated breakthroughs and our own embryonic technology of consciousness and may even rely on such techniques to perpetuate the prevailing wisdom that they originate from the far reaches of space. Contactees and abductees alike describe the interiors of alien vehicles in curiously cinematic terms. The insides of presumed spaceships are often seen like lavish props from never-filmed sci-fi dramas. The aliens don't fare any better. They behave like jesters, dutifully regurgitating fears of ecological blight and nuclear war, but casually inserting allusions that seem more in keeping with the disinformation than genuine E.T. revelations. After intercourse, the bug... The big bug-eyed succubus that seduced Brazilian abductee Antonio Vilas Boas pointed skyward, implying a cosmic origin. But the mere fact that she appeared thoroughly female and moreover attractive belies an earthly explanation.
Further, one could argue that clinical environment he encountered aboard the landed spacecraft was deliberately engineered to reinforce his conviction that he was dealing with extraterrestrials. If crypto-terrestrials are using humans to improve their genetic stock, it stands to reason they've seen at least a few of our saucer movies. As consummate anthropologists, they likely know that we expect of real ETs and can satisfy these preconceptions with a magician's stage skill. However, it's possible that they make mistakes. Strieber, for example, described the inside of a presumed vehicle as downright messy and seemingly unclean, complete with discarded garments, certainly not what you would expect of an advanced alien race. Could his visitors have been in a rush? If his account is to be accepted, the aliens operated in almost military fashion, carrying out their agenda with the economy of insects in their lockstep machine-like behavior. This suggests time is of the essence, consisting with an indigenous origin. While we might expect an alien intelligence millions of years ahead of ourselves to casually elude detection, the rushed nature of many abductions is more than keeping with an Earth-based time schedule. Further, the assumed spaceships that play such a central role in the E.T. mythos are often observed behaving in a manner consistent with only moderately advanced technology. Indigenous humanoids intent on convincing us we're dealing with interstellar propulsion might utilize surprisingly primitive devices, perhaps even stooping to specifically modified balloons or blimps designed to evade capture for limited periods. Such a campaign would be cheap, capable of capturing the attention of hundreds if not thousands of witnesses and most importantly further polarizing the UFO controversy among proponents of ET visitation and career skeptics the device that crashed near Roswell in the summer of 1947 whatever it was featured properties of at least superficially like the high altitude balloon trains ultimately cited as an explanation by the Air Force Debunkers have, of course, seized on the lack of revealing high-tech components found among the debris to dismiss the possibility that the crash was anything but a case of misidentification. Not even Major Jesse Marcel, the intelligence officer who advocated the ET origin for the unusual foil and structural beams, mentioned anything remotely resembling an engine or power plant. The crypto-terrestrial hypothesis offers a speculative alternative. Maybe the Roswell device wasn't high-tech. It could be indeed have been a balloon-borne surveillance device brought down in a storm, but it doesn't logically follow that it was one of our own. Given the top-secret projects underway in the American Southwest in the late 1940s, one could hardly blame inquisitive crypto-terrestrials for wanting a closer look. And in the midst of a possible human experimentation, secretive eavesdroppers might have understandably opted for an unmanned device lest they lose a crewed vehicle to an accident or human aggression. Upon happening across such a troubling and unexpected find, the Air Force's excessive secrecy begins to make sense. The Roswell incident may have been the U.S. government's first and direct evidence of an indigenous intelligence. Indeed, subsequent policy decisions can be interpreted as a response to the perceived non-human threat. I've speculated that the diverse humanoid forms encountered by the abductees and UFO witnesses might be best understood in terms of hive society replete with drones, engineered to perform specialized tasks. Given the current state of known transgenic research, it's certainly tempting to wonder if the crypto-terrestrials have been using similar techniques for ages. The hairy dwarves of South America might be attempts to fuse humanoid and primate DNA, 
Likewise, the mantis-like beings described presiding over the ubiquitous greys might literally be insectiles. Which invites the obvious question, who or what comes first? One of the tenets of the CTH is that the crypto-terrestrials have developed a technology of consciousness, to borrow a phrase from Whitley Strieber, that in many practical respects rivals our own technological prowess. One outcome of a fully, a fully realized technology of the mind is the ability to inhabit and shed bodies at will, much like a scientist inhabiting the sensorium of a far-flung robot. Science fiction writers continue to debate what methods we'll use when colonizing a planet such as Mars. Ultimately, we might choose to terraform the world into a facsimile of our own, but we could just as easily decide to modify ourselves to tolerate the inclement conditions. A post-human civilization could take up a residence in orbit and populate the surface with lifelike semi-autonomous drones. Visiting another locale could be as easily as logging to another body stationed elsewhere on the planet. Two or more persona might even elect to inhabit the same body for the sake of economy. Such a civilization might seem remote, but the general concept is already in practice. If our telerobotic probes continue to increase in sophistication and brain power, they'll eventually become indistinguishable from living creatures, at which point we will have effectively achieved the singularity, advocated by techno-progressives such as roboticist Hans Moravec and inventor Ray Kurzweil. If my hypothetical, hypothetical indigenous humanoids practice telepresence at the neurological level, perhaps by manipulating the electromagnetic film, the electromagnetic fields that constitute consciousness, the implications are far more disturbing than one may think. The ability to transfer souls entails the possibility of possession. It also allows for walk-ins and wanderers, New Age terms for allegedly non-corporal aliens who take command of human bodies. <coughs> Taken to its logical extreme, biological telepresence offers an expansive, if tentative, explanation for myriad occult phenomena. It potentially explains why we seldom see the crypto-terrestrials in the flesh. If they've mastered the technique of projecting themselves into our world from the safety of their enclaves, they'd have little reason to mingle with us unless compelled to on an impertinent basis. Displays of apparent technological superiority, for example, might demand the use of physical hardware, although we can't dismiss the possibility that some UFO sightings, while seemingly physical events, might be enacted on a psychological level. Our own neurological dabbling demonstrates that such techniques are less exotic than some may expect. Indeed, if neuroscientist Michael Persinger is correct, radiation emitted from natural phenomenon can sometimes result in convincing hallucinations. This psychotronic interpretation suggests the crypto-terrestrial influence is virtually omnipotent, each of us functioning as potential nodes in a sort of planetary internet. A resource of such scope would be dotingly maintained and fiercely protected against any would-be hackers. I've attempted to reconcile the visionary nature of encounters with non-humans described by the likes of, likes of Terence McKenna with the decidedly physical episodes recounted by the close encounter witnesses. Must the alien contactee experience be exclusively real or hallucinatory? Maybe, but maybe not. Chapter 5
encounter with a flower. Filmmaker Mike McDonald reports the following encounter with the other. It's funny how some memories stick with you all your life while others are forgotten, only to resurface after being jogged back by something that happens in the present day. In the case of this experience, it's one of my earliest memories, and it has always been in my mind. I call it a memory at the age of 47. There are very few instances of my first few years of life that I can recall with any clarity. Whether this memory is of a dream or an actual waking experience, I cannot say. My intuition tells me that it was a dream experience, but one of these life-altering, never-to-be-forgotten experiences that many of us carry around in our conscience and subconscious minds for life. My guess is this memory is from sometime in the first four years of my life. It's very simple to recount, but it has a deep, resonating, emotional effect on me when I recall it. It is in full color. I am standing in a cave. Sitting before me, on a throne fashioned out of rocks, is what I can only describe as a very large flower. The kind of flower that looks like it has a face with large slanted eyes. I know when I saw the communion book cover 20 years ago, I almost had a fit. Although the flower creature did not speak to me, I could feel that it was communicating to me somehow in a form of extreme condensation and intelligence. Sorry, condensation and intelligence. Like it was implying to me that it was in total command. Not necessarily in a malevolent way, but in a way of true authority. By my side was my father. He was extremely upset terrorized actually and possibly even ashamed this caused me much more grief than the attitude emanating from the flower being I had the feeling that the flower being had my father completely exposed in some way I can't really put my finger on it but the general feeling I had was that my all-powerful father the center of my four or five year old life was shaken to the core, and this frightened me more than the flower being itself. I will never forget this dream, nor the feeling of complete helplessness that my father displayed. At the time, incidentally, he was a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Force. The experience ends there. As I said, I shall never forget it. I have mentioned it to my father, but he has no recollection of anything like that. I wish I could correctly convey the attitude, for lack of a better term, that the flower man displayed. All-knowing, condescending, almost cruel, completely humorless, and even ruthless in terms of how it affected us. Needless to say, since then, I have always tended to look at flowers with a measure of suspicion. I liked the shamanistic sensibility of this encounter with the other. Ironically, while our conception of the alien has been subject to endless modification by a mass media eager to capitalize on our fascination with the non-human, we rarely encounter non-humanoid forms. Mike's description, suggesting nothing less than a sentient plant, recalls the beings encountered by ethnologists who experiment with naturally occurring hallucinogens. 
the large slanted eyes are an interesting twist. Could the prominent eyes now readily associated with grays be hardwired into the human brain? Destined to recur regardless of the appearance of the being looking out of them. Mike might be describing a brush with what psychologist Kenneth Ring has termed the imaginal realm, a state suspended between waking consciousness and the enigmatic turf of dreams. William S. Burroughs, for instance, described seeing green reindeer and diminutive gray men in his childhood. He later emphasized his concern that the decimation of the ecosphere constituted a sort of lobotomization of the collective unconscious, strip mining the fertile soil of Ring's world of the imagination as surely as a fleet of bulldozers set loose on the Amazonian rainforests. The pronounced authoritarian demeanor of the flower-like entity offers some support for Burroughs' intuitive sense that nature is angry at humanity's transgressions and more than capable of letting its displeasure be known. It's worth remembering that a hallmark of the archetypical alien abduction is a graphic ecological warning, suggesting that perceived ETs harbor a stalwart interest in Earth's environmental sustainability. Indeed, students of shamanism might argue about the greys or thought forms generated by the earth itself as a means of communication, and at least a few UFO researchers have taken note of their apparent vegetable nature. As the mimetic ancestors of the archetypical little green men, the greys can be viewed as chilly avatars of our fragile biosphere, bent on revenge Enlightenment are perhaps a curious fusion of both. Nor is Mike's memory of encountering a potent non-human intelligence within a cave without precedent. Contemporary abductees describe their nocturnal journeys to caverns with earthen walls, leading to natural assumptions that they've been transported to underground alien installations. But just as unannounced encounters with bizarre non-human beings are far from modern phenomenon, rock-walled caverns populated by strange beings and bewildering technology enjoy a lively role in world mythology. For example, folklorists have pointed out suggestive parallels between alien dwellings in the subterranean domains said to await victims of lustful fairies, whose behavior more often than not mirrors that of today's ufonauts. A commenter on my post-human blues blog left the following report. Lately, I've been thinking about a strange encounter I had as a child that makes some sense to me within the framework of the crypto-terrestrial theory. I thought you might find it interesting, so here it goes. I'm guessing I was around 10 years old, so it was sometime in the early 1990s. I was sitting with my little brother and three friends on a street corner in suburban Port Chester, New York. Summertime. Just as a bunch of children enjoying the warm weather, doing whatever it is children do, a man's voice suddenly began to speak in clear and polite diction from what seemed like immediately in front of us, but from nowhere. I don't recall anything particularly strange about this voice except for the fact that it did not seem to be from any person attached to it. It's often said that children are naturally more open-minded than adults and therefore more perceptive to the supernatural. 
I think that as adults we expect to understand our surroundings. We assume that there is a comprehensible explanation for whatever occurs. As kids, the whole world seems very alien. We often don't understand why adults do what they do or why nature does what it does. Sure, this disembodied voice struck me as odd, but then again so did thunder and lightning and grown-ups uh, taste for beer. I don't remember that any of us were afraid or even slightly uneasy. Naturally, we asked the strange voice where he was. He told us not to worry about that and to not bother looking for him, because we would not find him. He just wanted to ask a few questions. Now here's where it gets all weird. He couldn't have talked to us for more than a few minutes, but I honestly can't remember a single word from the rest of the conversation. I only have a vague recollection of how the tone of it all felt to me at the time. He struck me as a grown-up looking for clinical information, the way a good teacher or a doctor might ask questions intelligibly to a kid without sounding patronizing or childlike. When it was all over, I became determined to figure out the source of the voice. I didn't rule out that someone was pulling a prank on us even though none of us seemed to strike me as funny. Like many other kids, I liked to play with walkie-talkies. Though the voice lacked the typical fizziness of a walkie-talkie, I still began to wonder if there was some sort of device hidden somewhere nearby. There were no sewer grates around, no parked cars, just a road, some well-mowed lawns, and perhaps a couple of small bushes. My friends and I went across the street and began rooting around every nook and cranny, but came up empty-handed. Years later, I read Whitley Strieber's Communion and was immediately struck by the similarity of an encounter he described in which he and his wife were addressed by a voice on his radio. Strieber could not recall any of the conversation except for the voice saying something like, I know something else about you. I recall that line gave me goosebumps. Like little else in that book, there was a familiarity embedded in my own encounter which, in retrospect, freaks the fuck out of me. Did I, on some level, recognize this voice? So, what happened to us that afternoon? Have you ever heard of anything like this? Were we interviewed by some crypto-terrestrial anthropologist? That the UFO knots use a form of mind control is practically taken as given by most abduction researchers. But once we concede that our visitors are able to induce our dampen perception at will, where does one draw the line? Who is to say the bulk of abduction narratives can't be interpreted in an illusory context? Perhaps some incredible abduction reports, while sincere, reflect an intimate brush with virtual reality rather than encounters with literal extraterrestrials. The psychedelic realm has the visual flexibility of a multimedia installation or high-bandwidth website forcing me to consider that it's actual designed as a communication system, a sort of neurochemically derived chat room populated by all manner of colorful avatars. It's conceivable that trippers can access this interzone, even if inadvertently. The being seen described similarly in UFO and drug narratives might be the equivalent of neuropharmacologists and system operators. Online environments like Second Life, while fanciful, abide by many of the conceits and laws that govern the real world, if only for the sake of convenience. It's likely that an alien intelligence versed in non-local communication would apply similar reasoning when constructing a virtual environment. 
if assessed to the shamanic realm, hinges on the brain's production of DMT as argued by the University of New Mexico psychiatrist Richard Strassman, then the aliens might be attempting to promote organic DMT production through germline engineering. Abductees, frequent allusions to insects, and suspiciously similar depictions offered by DMT trippers suggest a literal hive mind at work, a concept that receives circumstantial support from with recent breakthroughs, especially with quantum entanglement. Tellingly, dialogue aboard UFOs is usually reported to be telepathic, a fact that speaks potential volumes about the crypto-terrestrials' culture and society, if they have one in any distinguishable sense. The CTs may well have a communication infrastructure, but a sort we don't recognize until we find ourselves ensnared in its web. Chapter 6. Curious Bystanders In contemplating the narrative and nature of apparent aliens, I assume that the UFO intelligence adapts to fit the prevailing psychosocial matrix, effectively camouflaging itself by insinuating itself into a given culture. But there is the equally appealing possibility that manifesting in terms of comprehensible to witnesses reflects the perceptual constraints of the contact experience. Aliens, whether perceived as gnomes or fairies or demons or even humans, in the case of the mysterious airship sightings of the late 19th century, may be forced to appear as they do by the cultural biases and limited expectations of the witnesses. Thus we have a pageant of fantastic beings of all descriptions, from robot-like monsters to winged entities such as the infamous Mothman, furry giants like Bigfoot, all manner of little men, and of course the ubiquitous greys. However, most if not all of the above may share a common psychic origin. Only by appealing to our collective unconscious can they take any form at all. As such, they constitute an ongoing waking dream. They are true hallucinations, quantum composites that, while objectively real as revealed by physical effects on the environment, demand a level of unconscious participation on behalf of their wide-eyed spectators. Jacques Vallée conducted a noteworthy study of the reports in which UFO occupants were seen outside their craft, usually engaged in such bewilderingly innocuous tasks as taking soil and plant samples. He concluded that given a statistical distribution of apparent UFO landings, there are simply too many landings for the extraterrestrial hypothesis to remain tenable. But if, in fact, UFO events require the presence of at least one observer, then Valet's rogues gallery of absurd humanoids makes more sense. Landings aren't as numerous as they may seem because they only occur when witnessed. From this, we can only conclude that at least some close encounters are staged events. Similarly, the genetic hybridization programs can supposedly conducted by gray aliens recount in Bud Hopkins' Intruders and Dave Jacobs' Secret Life makes more sense than viewed as a paraphysical agenda. Abductee Whitley Strieber has famously described the abduction experience as an attempt at communion between two radically different kinds of intelligent life forms. 
From his narrative and others, it indeed seems as if they want or need something from us. But I doubt that something is genetic material in the usual sense. It seems more likely to me that encounters with hybrid children in distressingly intimate examinations or attempts to encourage belief that greys are flesh and blood, ETs, and scientists. Their antics, while horrifying, may be as bogus as the many sightings of alien beings taking soil specimens. I think the aliens are waging the equivalent of a psychological operations campaign on the human species. It's doubtful their ultimate goal is anything so quaint or comprehensible as transgenic offspring, but neither it is necessarily malign or malignant. Simply, our visitors appear to be striving to become adept at accessing our reality, in effect becoming more real, and thus increasingly compatible with us. We nourish them with our attention, and as they penetrate the barrier separating from Our consensus reality, in which the subject of aliens and UFOs is systematically marginalized, they finally begin to loom above the bunkers of myth. Incidentally, in the case of the Greys becoming rather like ourselves in the process. Whether they come to us from the upper tiers of John Keel's superspectrum, or from some other parallel reality... Their activities betray an apparent need for the attention to which ufology has been essentially blind. Despite case after case of playful UFO behavior, especially pronounced during aircraft encounters, perhaps by engaging our psyche they pass the burden of their arrival onto our collective shoulders. Dreams have their own geography. Not merely a participator a participatory sense of place but a palpable topology an underlying spatial structure that challenges dogmatic concepts of reality as I revisit the localities of my psyche I'm tempted to ascribe them to genuine places only half seen if at all while waking our normal lives are flimsy and incomplete we should fully engage the dreaming self instead of denying or deriding it Illusions are endemic to perceptions, sleeping, waking, and are inhabiting that barely remembered interzone that straddles the border of our lives. I'm drawn to the concept that the universe needs consciousness, either to succeed in some utility or function, or simply to keep itself intact. If so, could it also need directed awareness in the form of technology? The UFO intelligence seems curiously out of its element a fact that should arouse extraordinary suspicion in the observer. One would think, given the time that it has to observe us, it should be thoroughly familiar with us and able to pass through without risking curious bystanders. But even a summary examination of the UFO literature demonstrates curious bystanders seem to be the whole point. And therein, I suspect, lies the ultimate identity of our unlikely guests. Why don't the aliens make open contact? Why do they seem content with taunting our aircraft and haunting lonely night roads? 
Why do the elusiveness that's characterized by the UFO phenomena since the modern era of sightings begin in the late 1940s? There are a multitude of reasons a visiting civilization would refrain from landing on the White House lawn. Foremost among them, the potentially debilitating effect upon open contact might wreak on terrestrial life. History shows that relatively advanced seafaring cultures topple less developed cultures in part by collapsing defining assumptions and rendering cultural selfhood obsolete. If it were on any research value to be a visiting civilization, that interfering at the micro-sociological level might threaten to destroy thousands of years of patient work. The paradox is that UFOs do exhibit an interest in our activities, but it's a cryptic, behind-the-scenes sort of interest, clandestine, seeming at first taken on, um, but at on a closer inspection, almost alarmingly conspicuously absent, like a silent plea for attention. One idea to account for this behavior is that the UFO intelligence somehow hinges on our belief in it a notion that assumes an esoteric origin instead of the more common nuts-and-bolts extraterrestrial hypothesis. In this scenario, the UFOs are engaged in an elaborate act of psychic propaganda, preparing our collective unconscious for the idea of others, our visitors, E.T. our otherwise. It's well worth remembering that humanity's interaction with apparent visitors is hardly limited to alleged space travelers in the 20th century. Jacques Vallée's classic Passport to Magonia offers strong support to the admittedly slippery prospect that UFO intelligence was functioning under the guise of fairy lore in Europe centuries before the idea of spaceflight became fashionable. It's possible that UFOs would like to imitate or initiate something like formal contact but are restrained from doing so by the physics of perception, as Whitley Strieber has suggested. So the pageant in our skies might be an ongoing indoctrination and attempt to become more substantial in our universe at least so that a more meaningful dialogue can be reached at some way undetermined point in the future. One way of achieving this might be able to cultivate a milieu of incipients in which non-human contact or disclosure seems inevitable. In fact, this illusory notion of impending ufological smoking gun has left a pronounced signature on the history of UFO research, often forcing investigators to take sides in a fruitless, if not colorful, ideological battle that reduces the UFO enigma to the trite discussion of galactic federations and Orwellian government oversight. If UFOs are attempting to breach our universe, our ingrained sense of disbelief might be preventing them in some arcane quantum mechanical sense. Strieber has argued that official denial of the phenomenon is designed to thwart a potential invasion of non-human intelligence, in which case it seems an enduring stalemate has been reached with occasionally power plays made by both the UFOs and earthly officials. This idea is similar to the citizens of the Planck brain in Rudy Rucker's science fiction epic Frick and Elixir. In Rucker's novel, the inhabitants of a parallel universe must accumulate a critical level of prestige and notoriety or else cease to exist. 
the ruling class consists of six individuals who are so well known and casually accepted by the other Plank Branners that they persist with their individuality intact while their fellows vanish during periodic renormalization storms. Only when the main characters deride and purposefully ignore them do they fade into the quantum background. Stryber takes a related idea and runs with it in his horror novel The Forbidden Zone, which depicts a reality-bending alien presence set loose upon a small town in the wake of a quantum experiment gone awry. The overriding theme, prevalent in occult literature, is that our universe is permeable and can, under specific circumstances, provide a channel to unseen realms, an idea that's remarkably similar to contemporary thought on wormhole travel. Of immediate interest is Aleister Crawley's Lamb, a magical entity which bears an uncanny resemblance to today's greys. Unlike Lamb, who functioned as a mentor and paraphysical guru, the greys are typically assumed to be dispassionate extraterrestrial scientists. If Crowley was practicing his conscious experiments today, would he be greeted by dome-headed beings in skin-tight jumpsuits? Perhaps it pays for aliens to stay in touch with predominant memes if it entails making a lasting impression. The presence of an awkward quasi-human man in black, chronicled in detail by John Keel and Jenny Randalls, suggested that aliens may have already infiltrated in perhaps in order to refine the art of passing as typical human. If so, what's the ultimate agenda? We're left with a surreal residue of encounters and sightings that describe an intelligence operating at the periphery of human consciousness. Whether this is due to a deliberate intent or can be attributed to obstruction, willful or innocuous remains one of ufology's most significantly unanswered questions. But if an alien intelligence is accountable for even a small degree of our collective preoccupation with the other, it's conceivable that we have in fact established a dialogue of sorts. Maybe we're being taught a new mythological syntax so that confronted with the specter of planetary disaster we'll have the means of rising to the challenge. I'm not suggesting we'll be saved at the last minute in some alien rapture, but the UFO phenomenon symbolically important should not go unrecognized. Perhaps, as Carl Jung mused, UFOs signal a change in the collective unconscious. The UFO intelligence might be attempting to hasten that change, if only for ultimately selfish reasons. It might be devastatingly lonely and need us to keep from withering away in a long interstellar night. Or the truth could be more immediate, just because we might be someone else's property and idea espoused by Charles Fort, doesn't mean we're not valuable property. In almost any scenario, the sort of peaceable contact foreseen by the contactees in the 1950s is extraordinarily unlikely. The evidence indicates that life on Earth will become increasingly severe, we may or may not survive intact, but it's just conceivable that someone or something hopes we make it. If I am right, such a post-singular indigenous intelligence would eschew informal contact for the simple reason that such disclosure would destabilize us possibly to the brink of existential obliteration. Theorists have attacked the trite assumptions of mainstream SETI for the same reason. If our own history is an example, technologically robust civilizations inevitably subsume less sophisticated cultures not merely by violently dismantling them, but by introducing a virulent strain of apathy. The infamous Brookings report to NASA recommended that discovery of extraterrestrial artifacts be covered up for the fear of paralyzing research development enterprises. Stans is perhaps the most explicit elucidation of this idea. The UFO alien phenomenon described by Jacques Vallée, John Keel, and Whitley Strebel is alarmingly congruent with the CTH. 
we appear to be interacting with an exceptionally patient intelligence which, despite its advantages over terrestrial science, seems limited by a steadfast refusal to make itself widely known. Whether this indicates a guiding morality or pragmatic necessity remains to be seen. Contrary to mainstream expectations, our visitors have opted for a much more gradual form of contact, evidenced both by the often theatrical nature of the apparent vehicles on our skies and by the behavior of the presumed occupants, who seem to enjoy letting us assume they hail from outer space. I propose that this intelligence has played a significant role in occasionally hastening our species' development, as well as keeping us in a periodic standby state, rendering us less likely to destroy ourselves. In a way, the human legacy has been scripted to conform to an alien template about which we know little or nothing, and the available historical, mythological, and experiential evidence tends to support a largely benevolent raison d'etre. Perhaps we're being groomed in preparation for our own singularity, after which the others could have no choice but to deal with us as equals. If we're dealing with aliens, regardless whether or not they originate in space or on Earth, maybe their clumsy, oblique interactions with us can only be explained if they're endowed with intelligence but devoid of sentience. They could have taken an evolutionary route that bypassed awareness entirely, or they could have achieved a form of sentience only to lose it, perhaps by recklessly merging with machinery. UFO knots are often described as behaving in a military or insect-like manner, even moving in lockstep. Maybe they're interested in us because we're aware and aware they aren't, and they're determined to acquire our capacity for self-reflective thought in order to communicate with us or others. In essence, our interaction with the UFO intelligence could be a dialogue with a complex but myopic machine. Maybe they have never encountered a species like us, and they are genuinely baffled, insofar as the distributed computer can be baffled. Ardent singularitans will doubtlessly point out that our brains are effectively distributed computers, in which case the aliens, if they're here, should possess sentience even if mechanical. But a sophisticated intelligence doesn't necessarily need to be aware of itself to perform a task. If we're observing beings created by someone or something else, sentience might have been deliberately excluded from their repertoire for fear of losing control of a useful tool. Our visitors seem both wildly sophisticated and limitlessly stupid. If they're collectively lacking what we commonly term spirit, it might be possible to resolve this seeming paradox.